We'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. We continue to return to the Exodus specifically of uh, that pre-Exodus period where the Lord is working in the hearts of his people, solidifying in them a uh, reality that he is the God above all other gods. But at the same time, he is also showing forth to one of the greatest nations of that time, maybe the greatest nation of that ancient world, to Egypt, to very Pharaoh himself, that he is the God of heaven and earth, and he sovereignly rules over all his creation. But he's also demonstrating to them that he graciously preserves and cares for his people. This is shown forth the wonders of his mercy to us who take refuge in Christ. This morning our passage is Exodus 9, verses 13 through 35. Follow along as I read for us the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like, no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such has not yet been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, bring, forth, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is, in the, is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, the hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there, were no, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplications to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer." Moses said to him, 
As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, but the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help one more time. Oh Lord, we come before you seeking the care of your spirit. So if you've promised, Lord, to be with the preaching of your word, I pray, Lord, that you be also with your servant who preaches, that I may preach according to the truth of your word and according to that truth only. May that which doesn't accord with your word be quickly forgotten, yet that which is true may it be received not as from men, but as from you, so that your word, so that you may be blessed and your people may be blessed and grow in their faith in Christ. We give you praise for these promises and ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we have been examining the connection between Pharaoh's question in chapter 5 as we keep coming back to this theme that he, he asks, he sets the tone, so to speak, there where he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And we see how the Lord has taken or takes 10 plagues to, to answer this question. And we began with asking the question our, ourselves, who is like Yahweh? And a couple weeks ago, we made an emphasis on the source of the answer being found in God's revealed word. Then we saw that the fourth plague had a stress upon worship being directed toward the Lord alone, limited by his revealed will alone. Last time we saw how the fifth and sixth plague display God's righteous judgment upon sinners with a goal that we, as those who are found in Christ, would wonder at his perfect and sufficient grace. And this morning, we do not move very far away from that idea as the final plagues serve as a typological model for God's judgment of unbelievers and relatedly a disciplining of wayward believers throughout the church age. We're confronted daily sometimes, but certainly weekly or monthly with the reality that we live in what some have said is a Genesis 3 world. We read in Romans that creation groans for the time of her redemption groaning in, in earthquakes, groaning in floods, groaning in great storms, sometimes through biological ways of pestilence and plague. And it's not in my intention to name every uh, thing that has come about in the most recent days, but I think if you think about them, you know that with every one of these grows, or the, with every one of these comes, it seems like, at least in our current period, our current context, two 
uh, narrative grow, grow out of these happenings. One in which say that this is something due to a man-made uh, climate change whereby we have created this tinderbox and this uh, great, uh, it's a tinderbox of catastrophe that it just takes one spark and we can burn down a whole island or it takes uh, one more fossil fuel vehicle and more hurricanes and more tornadoes and more storm storms. There's another voice, though, that says this is all organized. This is something that comes from your government, that comes from evil men doing evil things and plotting evil ways, setting, setting these fires, causing such disasters to be more disasters. And I'm not here to take one side or another. I'm not here to make a political statement as it is to those things, though I have my own opinions. But I think as we look at the plague this morning of the hail, I think we may see something related to who is actually at work in these catastrophes. For we do not disassociate as Christians, nor we should disassociate our sovereign Lord in the working out of redemption through all of history. We recognize what he has accomplished as we read God's word, as we read of uh, the uh, prophesying in typology, in symbol, in uh, indirect prophecy of the coming of the Lord, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then we read of his glorious appearing in the New Testament. And the aftermath in that though he's ascended on high, he has not abandoned his people and he still works through his church to accomplish his ends. And that we wouldn't separate this plan from these natural disasters as they're deemed. For they come to us not by the hand of men, whether, whether evil men have perpetrated it, whether we're the ultimate cause. They come to us by the hand of God. And so they come to us as Christians with a theological direction. They come to us so that we would look upon them as the Lord had directed the Egyptians and the Israelites to look upon this plague of hail. It cannot be missed for you, if you haven't already, as I was just confronted a week ago by a lady in a grocery store parking lot. She saw my day job sticker. Of, I'm a firefighter. She says, how about that fire in Maui? And oh boy, we were off to the races. I couldn't, it, I felt like uh, the Lone Ranger and I'm trying to catch that wayward wagon and jump on and pull it in because that conversation, it was out the door and around the block before I could even think of something to say. And I'm, I, I failed to say it all. I could only get out at the end. This is why we don't put our trust in men. Our ultimate hope is not in this world. But that was it. I had much more to say after studying the plague of hail, and I hope you will 
as you will certainly come across neighbors and loved ones who want to talk politics. And politics are okay to talk. It's okay to have opinions about these things. A good conspiracy theory is a good conspiracy theory. But let us be people disciplined and trained by God's word to speak of the gospel, the wonders of God's mercy and grace to us. And the Lord is displaying that in these acts. He does so this morning in this first plague of the last set of three plagues. We've been recognizing that these plagues are arranged in three sets of threes so that the tenth plague would be highlighted from the rest of the nine. And as we see these first nine plagues play into the tenth plague such that there is an anticipation for it. There's an escalation of devastation. And as it worked in the heart of the Israelites, an escalation in the hope of their deliverance. And so this morning we see that what comes in the first plague of that set of three, and this is the last set of three, is a warning. As the the second plague follows suit also. But we find that the third plague in each series came without no with no warning at all. And they came, they've been coming with manifold purpose that we've been recognizing. That they give a public manifestation of the mighty power of the Lord. That they were a divine visitation of wrath upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians as well as they were a judgment from God upon the gods or the so-called gods or as we know from the testimony of Scripture, the demons of Egypt. They also demonstrated that Jehovah was high above all other so-called gods. They also were to display man's utter inability and dependence as well as God's utter omnipotence and independence. They were a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who cursed the Israelites. And these plagues were meant to strengthen the people of God in the knowledge of God. It was for them to know better their covenant God. May it be the same blessing to us this morning. This plague comes to us, as I'll give it to you under three headings, the lesson the retreats, and the purpose. The lesson we see is that Yahweh's instruction to Moses here as to the message he gives to the Pharaoh, again, as we recognize that in each beginning of each set, there seems to be a new detail brought forth. And here this detail is the fullest recorded so far of instructions with special attention being given to the seriousness of what was about to happen, as well as God's purpose in sending a series of signs. Remarkably, Yahweh also gives advice as to how the Egyptians can avoid the fatal consequences of the hailstorm that is about to strike the land. This is the only plague that provides the Egyptians a way out, a way from having to suffer the full force of it. And as we will see in these last three plagues, as it seems like it moves away from uh, landing upon men in the previous three plagues, these last three plagues, as A.W. Pink recognizes, that they distinctly point to heaven as their place 
of origin. Here the hail comes from heaven. Then we will see that the locusts come from the skies as well as the darkness that will fall over all the lands. And God has given the lesson before us this morning in his word to Pharaoh as he says that they would know that no one is like him in all the earth. In Egyptian mythology, the goddess of the sky was called Nut. And as I've said, it, these historical backgrounds are helpful. Those that are not canonized and they're not infallible are inerrant. And so they are a nugget of help to see that there were gods of the Egyptians that the Lord was defeating in these plagues. He was not just displaying his rule over creation, but he was explain, displaying his supremacy over all other so-called gods. And so there was this god called Newt, and uh, she often de was depicted as an arched woman over the earth's god, Geb, who we'll see next week, for he was the god of the crops. Her body is depicted as being covered with stars, and she has a protective dome over him over Geb and all of his creatures. She was sometimes depicted as a cow or a sow, which signifies her role as the mother of the gods. Egyptian artists would also portray Newt as a woman who is holding a pot of water, which signifies her role as the giver of rain. She is regarded as a highly influential deity in Egyptian religion. She's the mother of the gods, protector of the universe, and the source of life. And the Lord sends hail upon the earth, destroying man and beast and crop. Hail and lightning and thunder. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as well as the Israelites, must learn that Yahweh alone is supreme. The implica implication being that the gods in whom Pharaoh had trusted and in whom he represented were essentially nothing. The earlier plagues, hard as they were on the Egyptians, were actually examples of restraint since God already could have sent at any time a full destruction or full destructive plague to eliminate the Egyptian population entirely. He says, I could have wiped you out with pestilence already. The Lord is saying that what you have seen, though terrible, is actually my restraining hand upon my wrath. So that you would see that there is none like me in earth and in heaven. That you would see the judgment upon your idolatry that you would see what is ultimately awaiting for you if you continue in your idolatry and do not turn to the one true and living God. Here we see a magnificent display where some uh, more liberal commentators would say that in the first plagues there was some progression of naturalistic causal events that you have the turning of blood and and poisoning the water, and the frogs coming out of the poison, and filling the houses, and 
causing a pestilence to spread, and then the frogs dying and flies rising up from them, and they have this order of events and these naturalistic causes. Lord, knowing the desires of their heart before they wrote the tomes of their theological works, or he also brought this seventh plague, where he says, well, I'll send hail, thunder, and lightning, and it will stop right here. You know, the outskirts of a storm are some of the most tumultuous places because where that storm is churning and moving and as a storm system moves into an area, the four winds are some of the strongest winds of the storm. Not so with this storm. The wind, the hail, the lightning, and the thunder stopped at the border of Egypt and Goshen. There would be no naturalistic interpretation here. There can be only a theological, there can be only a supernatural understanding that God is displaying his control over this phenomena that the Egyptians attributed to other gods. Later, liberal readers of scripture will attribute to nature. The Lord clearly indicates his realm was without limits of any sort. Especially, it included Pharaoh, who thought of himself as the ultimate power in Egypt. If there was one person who could petition the gods and get them to do and bid him, it would be the Pharaoh. And yet the Pharaoh was found impotent. He had to come to Moses and Aaron. He had to come to a detestable people. They were shepherds. The Egyptians thought shepherding was a detestable practice, we've, we've read. He had to come to these men and say, help me. Better yet, call upon your God to help me. Furthermore, the Lord would display not just his control over the phenomena, but he would show and display his ultimate power, for he was going to send a storm, send one that had not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. It's interesting, we can uh, read in other extent uh, writings that there was potentially an idiom in Egypt of this day, whereby they uh, said something of the same sort, that Egypt was uh, the first civilization, that they were the beginning of all things. So when it was, when he says it had not seen in Egypt from the day to the Egyptians, he was saying, this has not been seen since the beginning of time. So Moses' warning uh, was the Lord toying with what was said to be a common held belief in Egypt that they were the seat of all civilization. The Egyptians were enormously proud of their long history as a nation and thought of all other peoples as newcomers, automatically inferior to themselves, who they viewed as the original and central civilization of the earth. And yet the Lord is... He moved Paul to write to the Ephesians as the father from whom every family in heaven on an earth and on earth derives its name. The Lord is displaying not just to the Egyptians as we've been seeing, but also to the Israelites that he is the Lord of all. There is no one else to turn to in our time of need. 
there's no one else to turn to in our time of destruction, in a time of tragedy, than the Lord. Because it would be through him and flow from him all other blessings. As we'll see, there may be some temporary retreat to be found in naturalistic understandings, but our ultimate retreat better be in Christ, yet we, above all, are to be pitied. So as we look at our passage this morning, we've seen something of the lesson. We also see that within there, there was also a number of retreats. The first retreat we see in verses 20 and 21, where it says, Among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. Many of the Egyptians decided that Yahweh was at least a powerful deity among deities and that he could deliver on any threats he made. They didn't rely upon Newt to protect them and protect the earth, to prevent Yahweh from sending this storm. They listened. They feared the word of the Lord. They had heard and known of the coming plague and even assented to its truth to some degree. But they did not yet put their trust in someone or some being other than themselves or their false gods. As Moses makes it clear, he says, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The testimony in verse 20 is that they feared the word of the Lord. But they had yet to fear the Lord. Though it was not a part of God's instructions explicitly, I think we can um, come to the conclusion implicitly that if they really wanted safety, they should have retreated to Goshen. They should have upped and moved and said, I no longer associate myself with Egypt. I associate myself with Israel. But instead... They did as what was minimalistically required to conform to the word of God according to outward means, and so they brought their servants and their livestock and fled into the houses. Were they saved? Yes, they were for a time. For there will be a plague of locusts that will come upon their rest of their crops, that there will be the death of the firstborn that will come and no servant, no livestock will be the escape that plague unless they were marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so we see that there was this retreat of many Egyptians. They feared the word of the Lord, yet they had not put their trust in the Lord. They had a knowledge of what the word of the Lord said, they assented that it would be true and happen, yet they would not trust in him. So we have a reminder of what Brother Aaron taught last week of what is of saving faith, the knowledge of the gospel, the assent to its verity, to its truthfulness, and yet beyond that we apply it then in trust and say it is our gospel. Christ is our Savior. There was another retreat that took place, and that was Pharaoh. Pharaoh in 
verses 27 and 28, retreats, as it were, to Moses and Aaron. And he admits to being wrong for having treated the Israelites as he had. He retreats back. Remember earlier, he doubles down when they say, let my people go. And he says, you have too much time on your hands. It's quite obvious. I'm going to double your workload, and I'm going to make it harder for you. Here he's retreating from that a bit. Because he's saying that they have sinned. I've sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. But we know that he does so temporarily, only under the pressure of the worst, most damaging plague so far. He was not running to Moses and Aaron, asking how he may come to know the Lord, how he may worship the Lord. But he says, go to your God and offer sacrifice. Go to him and ask him to relieve us of this plague. And we further know that he never really intended to repent, but only to retreat to religious ritual through Moses. He wasn't really repenting and taking refuge. He's retreating into this ritualistic form of religion where he tells Moses to go and pray to his God, make supplication, and I'll let you go and you shall stay no longer. There would be a transaction taking place in Pharaoh's mind. If I do for you, you will do for me. Pharaoh obviously showing us that in the root and seat of his heart was that broken covenant of works where he sought righteousness apart from Christ. But we see this not only in Pharaoh, this retreat to religious ritual. We can see it furthermore in the Israelites later on. Turn with me to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29 and verses beginning in verse 13. First, we have a warning coming to Jerusalem there at the beginning of the chapter. Why is Jerusalem of all cities warned? The place of God's dwelling where he would build his house. Why is Jerusalem warned? Surely Jerusalem. Christ has and his coming said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that I would have you. Oh, that you would return to me. In verse 13, the Lord says, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees us, or who knows us? You turn things around, 
Shall the potter be considered as equal to the clay, that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it? He has no understanding. The Lord doesn't know if I approach him in just a heartless, ritualistic religion. How could he tell? Nobody around me can tell. I know the words to use. I know the phrases to say. Here, the Israelites falling in their own pride of self-worship, turning away from their maker, turning away from the potter. But there's more. Christ confronts this, utilizing this passage in Matthew 15. He's now confronting it not only in the people, but now he's confronting it in the religious leaders. He says in verse 7 of Matthew 15, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Here we see the Lord confronting the Pharisees. May it be that he would confront the Pharisees of our own heart this morning that turn what we have in beautiful liturgy into rote religious practice. Stand up, sit down, amen. Praise be to God. Thank you for the reading of your word. The Lord knows our hearts, brothers and sisters. He knows when they are far from us, far from him. It goes not apart from his knowing. For those of us that are in Christ, we may expect the fatherly and loving discipline of the Lord to bring us back into communion with him in that way. For those of us that do it as practice time and time again, we do so to our own condemnation. We do so because we're rejecting what is front and foremost here, though we bring no hail and thunder and lightning we bring mere preaching and singing and praying and reading and bread and wine. But these items are to be for you a sign that there is one God. There is one salvation. There is one hope in Christ alone. And that is for us through faith alone, by grace alone. Finally, we see the final retreat. Moses retreats, but for a different purpose. He retreats not for being scared, but he, he appears to retreat to make an emphasis. He goes out in verse 33. He, wants, he go, goes out of the city from Pharaoh, spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured on the earth. What does that tell you? That Moses walked right through 
that plague. Pharaoh potentially watching him all the way out, not being hurt, not being hindered. He not only could travel through the hail, but could stand and pray for the end of the hail in the very location, exposed out of doors, and that was otherwise fatal to people and animals. He could go into the area of danger and remain unharmed. Brothers and sisters, we will not be so as the Israelites in the land of Goshen as it relates to temporal suffering, temporal plagues and disasters. We'll be in the midst of them with everyone. But if we, like Moses, have been set apart, we may go ultimately unharmed. Not that it doesn't touch our bodies or our houses or our money or or anything else, our loved ones. But as the word of the Lord says, it cannot touch our new nature that held in union with Christ. What glorious it is to see the mercy of Christ, the mercy of the Lord here in the plague of hail in Egypt. What is the purpose of this plague? Well, we've address some of the purpose this morning. But I think we would leave something undone if we didn't address it further. G.K. G.K. Beale says that in Revelation, the Exodus plagues are understood as a typological foreshadowing of the trumpet plagues, whose effect is escalated to the whole earth. Further, he observes the suffering throughout are continual reminders of how transient the idolatrous object of the earth dweller's trust is. The sufferings result from deficiencies in the world, world's resources, which the ungodly depend on to meet their needs. These trials coupled with actual death remind them that they are ultimately insecure. Let's see this in the word of our Lord together. Turn with me to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, 17 through 21 concerns the last judgment pictured also in the sixth and seventh seals, the seventh trumpet, and the final judgment scene in, verse, in, chapters, in chapter 14 and verses 14 through 20. Here the word of the Lord says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split in three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Here we see Revelation using the analogy of the inauguration of the kingdom through the cross and resurrection. 
considering how Jesus' cry set in motion the breaking in of God's kingdom, yet in such a way that it would only reach fulfillment at the time of the second cry, when there would be not only the final redemption of God's people, but the decisive and final judgment of God's enemies. These last set of three plagues serve as a typological model for God's judgments of unbelievers. They are to look upon this world and see the tragedy. And though it is right before their eyes, it's right at the end of their nose. They will not recognize that this is the Lord displaying that he is a righteous wrath upon this world and upon the sinners who inhabit it. And he will one day fulfill or finish that judgment. But furthermore, they don't just not recognize it, but they blaspheme God. And what kind of God would allow such things to happen? What kind of God waits is the right question. When God told the, the, the Egyptians, I could have sent pestilence. The Egyptians said, said, what kind of God waits and is patient, wanting all to come to know him, waiting for the last one of his elect to come into Christ? One who is twice or thrice holy, one who is praised in all his works of creation and of redemption and ultimately of consummation. It not only works as a judgment of unbelievers typologically, but relatedly a disciplining of wayward believers throughout the church age. This ought to change the way we consider plague and disaster in our current day. G.K. Bill has these, uh, pointed out these questions. Do we think of such events primarily as warnings designed to wake unbelievers up so, that, so as to change directions? Do we think of them as beginning judgments on hardened unbelievers? Do we also see such destructive elements at the same time as trials through which believers are refined and through which they draw closer to God? We may be tempted to think of these events as neutral towards God's unfolding plan of mercy, that these plagues and these natural disasters, they're not in that plan, they're just kind of running side of it with something that happens. They are not neutral. Because as we read our Bibles in context with itself, we see that the Lord who is sovereign over them assigns them relevancy for unbelievers and believers alike. For the unbeliever, they are to display the utter futility of hoping in the things of this world. I don't want to play upon disaster, but I know there are those that had their dream home in probably the dreamiest place in this world taken from them in a moment, in a flash. May the Lord use it to show that they, their hope is not in this world. Our Lord said that those things moth and rust destroy they are to be the alarm clock to their souls to waken their spiritual slumber. But as we know, this slumber is actually death 
And as we have seen in Exodus, a response to God's wrath often only produces fear. To those who, like the Egyptians, who have known the truth and given assent to its truth in degree, but continue to trust in their own abilities. The Lord speaks through the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm from whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out of arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has been worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Such are those that attend the worship service of the Lord in rote ritual, applying not the petitions of the gospel to their own heart. And so they go from here and return to the vomit of their life, to the muck and mire of their practicing and living in sin. But when coupled with the scandalous gospel of free grace, may by the power of the Spirit bring resurrection life so that we would be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. This implies you are not necessarily responding the same way as believers to every crisis. Your testimony of hope through storm, sickness, poverty, loss, whatever the Lord has brought you or bringing you through is, ready, is readying you for encounters with a lost and hopeless world of unbelievers. May you be more prepared for those ladies in grocery store parking lots than I was that afternoon. May you consider that these tragedies, these storms and disasters are a testimony to God's greatness and his mercy, for he restrains his hand to not wipe every sinner off the earth in that moment. But he delays so that the gospel may go out to the very last lost sheep. This is how the Lord fatherly uses disaster and destruction for the believer. They are a display of winnowing mercy. For the believer, they remind us that we do not receive what we deserve but look with blessed joy upon Calvary's cry, it is finished, and know that our mercy has a name, Jesus Christ. It is through his life, death, burial, and resurrection that we know that what this world has to offer is nothing compared to the future glory we will share in eternity. So we trust more in the rock that is higher than us. We rejoice that one day, one more cry of it is finished will be our last tear Our last doctor's appointment, our last heartache, our last discipline. So as we look to Christ, both on the cross 
and at the Father's right hand. Let it be to us a strengthening and motivation toward obedience. Obedience now. Heed the discipline of, father, of the Father to return to our inheritance of righteousness. To pray the Spirit to invigorate our lives to display the beauty of His workmanship by walking in the light as He is in the light. And finally, let it be the solidifying faith to endure until we see our Savior as He is. May the Lord bless us with this this morning as He promised to do so by the power and work of His Spirit in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give You praise that you have not left us to our own destruction, but you have shown us the wickedness of our sin, the wrath that is due to its sinfulness, and furthermore, you have shown us our Savior who has taken that wrath upon him who has satisfied your justice, who has redeemed us and purchased us by his very blood, and who has risen again to new life so that we may have hope to do so now in spirit, one day in fullness of body and spirit. To the praise of your glorious grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.